You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Today's sermon text comes from Colossians 1, 19 through 23. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. This is God's word. Well, good morning. If you uh, have your Bibles with you or even the Bible in front of you, or we have these Colossians study um, I don't know what do you call them. They're, you scripture notebooks, you can write in them. They're actually spread throughout here. Grab those, turn to Colossians chapter 1. We are four weeks in and still in chapter 1, friends, but there is so much to go through. Uh, today we're going to be talking about remaining grounded and steadfast in the faith. And uh, before we begin, I want to ask that the uh, Spirit of God be with us to teach us. Pray with me. Uh, Father, in your kindness, you have given us this opportunity to be able to open up your word and to hear from you. And Lord, I trust that in my own preparation, God, that you would be most glorified and Jesus would be made much of today. Lord, as we open up and look through Colossians, I pray, God, that the truth that you have for us would work deeply in our souls. Your spirit would make us look more like Christ. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. So what does it actually mean to be or remain, be remaining grounded and steadfast in the faith. There are oh so many things in this world to tempt us away, draw us away, shake us away from the foundation of our faith. And in the world we live in now, even as we talk about the fact that you can get the bad diagnosis like Dr. Shaddix and your family can go from thinking tomorrow is endless to realizing that our time is limited. Or you can find the temptation of the world around you that draws you away to all sorts of lies and distractions and things they say are better than what God might have to offer you. Or honestly, even the enemies of God that we've talked about so often, the devil, which is not responsible for what you do, but can tempt you in ways that he knows will draw you away from foundation of strength and faith and steadfastness in Christ. Or your own flesh, which is really what is being enticed, we hear in Scripture. It's not always the devil made you do it, but you're the one who agrees with him and goes off into those temptations. And all of those things shake us from being grounded and steadfast in our faith. And last week when we were talking about that passage, we discussed that that Paul had reached the crux of the letter that he was writing to Colossae. That he was, he was setting the foundation from which he was going to build the rest of his appeal in refuting what were false teachers in the church and around their city because there were people who were coming in threatening to lead this young small church into all forms of error and philosophy that we're going to read more about in this letter later. 
And they were going to be distracting them away from what is the simple central focus of their faith and their love, which is Jesus Christ. So last week, the hymn that Paul placed in this letter was all about Jesus. We talked about how Christ, that the creation that we see around us is all by, through, and to Christ himself. And that then beyond that, God is in Christ working a new creation to redeem what was created. And all of new creation is by, through, and to Christ as well. It's almost like the theme of all of scripture is Christ. And then we go to this next passage, and Paul here is solidifying this very foundation that he set and trying to lock it in. And he's going to turn to his own example, but he uses a very, very uh, familiar framework for Paul in which he tries to take Colossians and say, this is all about what Jesus is doing for you and who he is. And then he says, remember who you once were, and now look at how the power of God has changed you. And then now live like that new person who's confident in God's power. It shows up in other passages like Ephesians. But in here in particular, we're focusing a lot primarily on what it is that where you were and what God has brought you to. And this echoes the earlier passage that we read from in chapter uh, 1, verse 13, where, where it says that God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us in the kingdom of his son he loves. And now Paul's expanding a little bit on that. He's expanding a little bit on that. Who is the one that Christ, I mean, that God loves, the son he loves? It's Christ himself. And that's the kingdom we live in. Later in verse 27, we read that God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we see book-ended around this passage that God is taking us out of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves, who is Christ. And that the mystery of what he's trying to do is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is the hope of glory. There's an interesting phrase in this particular passage that's called that, that, where Paul asked them to not waver from the hope of the gospel. And in a way here, hope is not something, it's someone. Christ in you is the hope of glory, that God would rescue us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of his son, making peace through Christ's death. We're going to spend most of our time or all of our time here in 21 through 23, but we wanted to read prior into the, pa the last passage in verse 19 because it sets the context for what Christ, what God is doing in Christ, and it's making peace through Christ's death. Christ is not secondary to the gospel. Christ is the gospel. And where we anchor our hope, in his person, his work of reconciliation and glorification. So what we want to do today is we want to look at, Col at the Colossian letter and recognize that Paul wants us to remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and not shift away from that hope of the gospel. So how do we do that? How do we remain grounded and steadfast? Well, Paul starts like he normally does, reminding us of our condition, the condition that God meets humanity in. So we first remember life without Christ, verse 21. Now, you may have heard someone talk about their BC days. They're before Christ's days. And you may have heard them talk about it in such a way that made you a little uneasy as if they missed them. Okay? Like a little fondly. Like back then, what I used to be like. The parties I used to go to. 
But in this particular case, Paul does not talk fondly or glowingly about the Colossians' life before Jesus. Look at verse 21. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. We're going to go one verse at a time, friends. One verse at a time. Alienated. What is he talking about when he says alienated? Well, he's not talking about aliens. Anybody fans of ancient aliens? Like this, you know, okay. Oh, we got, we got a hand. I see that hand there. <laughs> We're not talking about aliens. We're not talking about illegal aliens, which is a popular conversation in the news today. In this particular fact, Paul is actually referring to uh, Gentiles, essentially. It's a common phrase throughout Scripture when you're talking about someone who's non-Jewish. And what's unique about the Jewish people? Well, way back in the Old Testament, when all of humanity was falling apart and, obedi and disobedient to God, and Noah, anybody know that little fun Christmas story where God killed almost the entire earth with a flood? Little kids, not Christmas, kids story. My language is awful. People have been correcting me all weekend. I need to get more sleep. Okay, that, that really popular kids story where God destroys almost the entire earth with a flood? Well, after the flood, God selected a man, Abraham to be the beginning of a people that would lead to blessing the entire earth. It wasn't that they were special in any way other than they were God's chosen people for that purpose. They didn't do something to earn it, but God selected them as the conduit through which Christ would come. The Colossian church was not Jewish. And most of us in here, I don't know your background and your history, are also Gentiles, meaning that our background and our history is alienated. We're outside the promises of God's people. We did not have the law. We did not have Moses. We did not have Sinai. We don't have the story of Exodus as an ethical, I mean, I'm sorry, as an ethnic people. And Paul said you were alienated. But according to Romans, when he writes, it says that being alienated outside of God's people isn't an excuse for what he says next, being hostile in your mind. Romans chapter 1 describes it this way in verse 19 through 20. It says that since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attribute, attributes, that is his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. And as a result, people are without excuse. So Paul in Romans says there's no excuse for hostility against God, yet we choose it. It doesn't mean that we're the worst we possibly could be. Don't hear me say that. Hostility comes across, you think that, in my mind, I'm going, that guy's hostile. I'm probably not describing a guy that just doesn't kind of like me. But in this particular case, it's not the worst that they could be. Mind is also defined other places as heart. It's the central core of who they are. In a sense, Paul is saying essentially, at your core, you are in opposition to God. You're in opposition to God. Though all things in heaven, um, though he created all things in heaven and earth, before Christ, you didn't want anything to do with him. But you were happy to enjoy all the stuff he made. That's what he continues to say in Romans chapter 1 and verse 25. That the people exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. See, apart from Christ, we're hostile in mind because we have completely disregarded the creator 
and instead chosen to enjoy the pleasures he has made without ever considering his desires for his creation. It's, it's this kind of mentality that encapsulates much of the wisdom in our world. My body, my choice, without ever considering what's God's choice. Live your truth without seeking what is the truth of God. See, phrases like this and others begin to encapsulate an idea that says what I know to do and what I desire to do is better than what God has for what he's made. And collective worldly wisdom would try to label God as some dictatorial party wrecker that just wants to stop all the fun. But what you have to understand is at the core of every single pleasure and enjoyment this world has to offer was created by him. And ultimately, we glorify the creator when we rightly enjoy all his good gifts that he gives. Paul goes on to say that being hostile in mind is evidenced by your evil deeds. Evidenced by your evil deeds. That means that the way in which you live is a fruit of the mind or the core of who you are. The indulgences of humanity the abuse and profaning of God's good gifts that he gives, only to name a few, the friendships we can have, the industry and work that we can do, the food we can enjoy, sex and sexuality, marriage, all the profaning of those things, the fruit and evil deeds in our world we see today is greed, gluttony, and every form of perversion and pain. Like, the world doesn't have a really great track record with trying to manage creation. But it's not just the world out there that's our issue, friends. We can't always look out to say those people and those out there are destroying what we see around us. We are also tempted to follow after the wisdom of the world. But Ephesians reminds us that we are also led astray by the enemies who tempt us and the desires of our own flesh. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 reads, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. A ways of this world, right? According to the ruler of the power of the air, the, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them. How? In our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. Friends, in our flesh, we contribute to the problem. We are our own worst enemy. The devil might have given you some ideas, but the devil never made you do it. See, unbelievers, apart from Christ, if you're here with us today, this is where you are. This is what Paul says, apart from Christ. You're subject to wisdom of the world and the desires of your own flesh. And the answer is some, some form of spirituality. The answer isn't some other quick fix. The answer isn't intermittent fasting or cold plunges in the morning. The answer is Christ. He's the one that changes us. And you might be seeking or considering Christ, and praise God for that, because I believe that the Spirit is drawing you to him. And there is a way to peace with God, and we want to show you. Believers, those tempted, these temptations don't go away. I mean, do you know that as believers? You re 
Everyone here has been saved for any amount of time. You're like, you know what? I don't deal with this anymore. That is not a thing for me. The domain of darkness is always ready to welcome you back, friends. Can I point to, uh, to, to the fact that we ha- this is the reason we have a psalm like Psalm 51? Like King David is someone in the Old Testament who's lauded as a figure who, I mean, he, he's this like superhero in some respects in the Old Testament, right? He kills Goliath. You learn, if, you're in, if you're growing up in Sunday school, you learn this early. He kills the giant. He defeats army after army. He ascends to the throne. He rules over a strong, united Israel. He's like the king of kings. He's actually in the line that leads to Jesus. But friends, he fell hard. Like he fell hard. He, he sexually coerced a wife that was not his own, who was, who was the wife of, his, of a great warrior and close friend of his, who was off in battle. He was at war for King David. And then when he found out she was pregnant, he tried to cover it up. And then when that didn't work, he murdered his friend to take care of the problem. Like that's, that's not the deepest, darkest problem I've been in as much as I've been tempted. But we see David fall hard. And he pens Psalm 51 and says, even in spite of that, verse 12 reads, God, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Like, David, when he's confronted by Nathan, still knows he can come back to the Lord. And he wants to be restored. He longed for a restored relationship with the God of his salvation. And that restoration is available to all of us in Christ. In Christ. Paul wants us to be intimately familiar with the work of Christ. And he wants us to know that while creation is by, through, and to Christ, new creation is by, through, and to him as well. And here, again, no matter how hostile you may have been toward God, you can know peace by and through Christ. Verse 22, but now, that turn, but now, he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before you. What is going on here? It's the echo we've heard throughout Colossians that God found you where you are. By the way, didn't note this. This verse is when Paul finally turns to you and I. Like he's been talking about Jesus a lot. And immediately when he turns to you and I, he was like, you guys were wrecked. You're wrecked. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death. He has made a way of peace for us with God. How? how? By reconciling us through Christ. It echoes that early statement we see in Colossians chapter uh, 1, verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Who? Jesus. And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And Christ we can be reconciled through his blood, through his death. That's what Paul wants to let us know. You have been reconciled if you're in Christ. You're no longer captive to darkness. That's why he says he's transferred you out of the domain of darkness. He has rescued you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of the sun. So peace has been struck. Peace has been struck. You are 
look, the words here are clear. You were hostile in your mind, and now there's peace from God's end because he's made it right with Christ, but yet so many still remain hostile toward him. Like there's still, there's a way, and yet the world remains hostile toward him of their own determination. And we can still live, live hostile towards him out of our own determination. There's actually a famous battle in Palmetto Ranch, the Battle of Palmetto Ranch. It's from the Confederate, uh, I'm sorry, well, I won't, it depends, the Civil War is what we call it, okay? All right, so this is the Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered his army at Appomattox on April 9th, 1865, and they appointed Andrew Johnson to declare an official end to hostilities. It was over. But on May 10th, the American Civil War lingered in Texas. Near the Gulf port of Los Brazos de Santiago along the Rio Grande, Union and Confederate forces clashed for roughly 24 hours, still fighting a war that was over. They were still hostile towards one another. It didn't end just in war. It wasn't until June 19th of 1865, nearly two years after President Abraham Lincoln emancipated slaves in Africa, uh, enslaved Africans in America, and two months after the war ended, that Union troops finally got to Galveston Bay, Texas with news of freedom. And there was more than 250,000 African-American slaves still living in slavery in Texas that embraced freedom by this new executive decree. So literally the war is over, hostility, peace has been called, and there's still hostility and there's still enslavement. The hostilities, friends, are over in Christ. And peace and freedom are available in Christ. We're no longer hostile. We're no longer opposition to God. We can come to him as a loving father and we can find rest. It's also important to note that this verse talks about the totality of Christ's reconciliation. It says specifically it's by his physical body. This stands in stark contrast to, the, to, to how some of the teachers around Colossae were trying to make it a spiritual thing. They were there were heretics in the early church who would try to say that Christ's resurrection, that he really wasn't physical because his physical body and the physical world is all evil. But the truth is that Christ's victory wasn't just a spiritual one. Christ died to redeem, refine, and ultimately resurrect all of you. Like every bit of you. He wants to take what is created, perfect and right, and now broken and make it new. Like he made all things in heaven and earth and he wants to make all things new. And it paves the way for what we see next that Christ is doing. His desire as he saves you is to present you now to God holy, sanctified, set apart, no longer with a mind hostile to God, but one captivated by God. To present you faultless, perfected, righteous, no longer bearing evil deeds, but bearing fruit of the Spirit at work in you, and to present you blameless, guiltless, free from all accusation. There's no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ didn't die for you today to leave you where you are. He gave his life and his physical body so that he can begin to transform you today. 
And while these words here, friends, none of us are completely holy and sanctified set apart, like, like in ourselves. None of us are faultless in our own actions. None of us are blameless without guilt in ourselves. But we are all those things in Christ today before God. And over time, we have a phrase in, in, uh, when it comes to theology of things and big words. Anybody like big words, uh, theology words? I don't care for any, all of them. They're all confusing. But when you do salvation, there's usually thought of in terms of justification, meaning making you right now, sanctification, meaning changing you and growing you and making you more holy and look like Jesus, and glorification, which is really what's in view when Paul's talking here, ultimately of pre- presenting you fully glorified before God in the right state in which you were made to be. Hmm. And the way that God does it is this. In Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Always in Christ. A very well-known phrase, uh, verse in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you might be familiar with, by grace are you saved through faith, but what you might not equally be as familiar with is verse 10, which continues to say that you are not only saved just to be saved, but, verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. God rescues you to sanctify you and to glorify you before the Father. Like, he desires to do that work. And if we look at the final verse right here in verse 23, because this is Paul's turning point to now how should we live in light of that? We should anchor our hope in Christ Jesus. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Let's look at the first part, 23, verse 8, because it's interesting to read how Paul puts this. He says, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith. There's a conditional here, right? If you're reading this quickly, you might think, if I do, so like if I don't, does that mean... God's going to be like, hey, you were saved, but then you cha- I changed my mind because you're just not quite hashing out. You weren't the same game planned. We're going to go with game plan B because, you know, you're not an A player. That's not what's happening here. See, there's actually commentaries would say that Paul's got three options on why he is saying it this way. The first would be conditional salvation, that he seems to set a condition for salvation. He implies that believers might lose it if they don't continue in faith. The issue with that is it contradicts everything else in Scripture. Like that's, just in case you guys are learning about Bible Study 101, that's a problem. Okay, if that's your interpretation, and then you read the rest of Paul's letter, and he's not jiving with himself, that might not be it. So what are the other options? Well, it could be it's a blameless presentation. Okay, suggest the clause refers to believers being presented blameless at the day of the Lord. If you continue on to be presented blameless, it does align with this call for purity and moral conduct in his life. But the issue here is that Paul's strong language about departure from faith, it indicates a concern beyond moral conduct. All right, it, it, it's focusing on adherence to gospel hope. 
And so this is not as likely. The third is probably what he means, and that's the evidence of genuine commitment. It implies here that Paul believed all true believers would naturally continue in faith, serving as proof of their genuine commitment. You know, think about it. When you're hostile in your mind, it's evidenced by your life. Paul is saying that if you truly have your faith in Christ, it's evidenced by your life. The strength of that is that it aligns with this natural exhortation and his confidence in the perseverance of genuine believers. It's probably the most probable interpretation. I probably use that word long. Probably the most probable. There's probably a better way to say it, but I'm not really good with my words. This passage, Richard Mellick in his commentary says, this passage should be translated, assuming that you continue. That's probably a better understanding. So to remain grounded in your faith, what is it that Paul points us to in the next section? He says, if you continue, assuming you continue, what is it you should do? Anchor our hope in Christ. Anchor your hope in the gospel. To remain grounded in, in your faith. Hope isn't just wishful thinking. Hope is a well-built trust in the truth that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. Like he's gonna continue to be at work at you, friends. Like, like everything that Christ did for your reconciliation, he did while you were dead in your sins. So he's not walking away from you as a project. Like you're not a failed project. Like Christ will continue to work in you. There is no sin. If you're not, did you know none of your sin catches God off guard, Right? Like, like you just like one day you fail, you stumble. Like even David, the worst he did, God wasn't in heaven being like, whoa, that threw me off. Like this is, who saw that coming? Holy Spirit, what's going on down there? No, that's not happening. Michael, can you check it out? No, he's not shocked. And the reason that's encouraging is because he still chose to save you knowing exactly how you were gonna live. Like he doesn't change his mind about you. Could you walk away from him? Could you, could you turn away from him and go on to live your own way? Absolutely you could. But he holds you. He holds your salvation. And he doesn't just haphazardly allow someone to go on their way just because they didn't live right that day. See, forgiveness of sin is just as sufficient today for you as it was the day Christ willingly bore it in his physical body on the cross. Like there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. For everyone who resists or rests their hope in Christ, Paul goes on in this passage to affirm two truths. That reconciled believers in Christ are changed and are being changed. And then he goes on to, to also show us that by following his example, we see that we are agents through whom God's work of re reconciliation is to be carried out. Let me say that again so it's, I think I, I think I want to make it clear for you. Paul affirms two truths, that reconciled believers in Christ are changed and they're being changed. But also, if we look at his example next, we are agents through whom God's work of reconciliation is being carried out. Second Corinthians in chapter five confirms this it's also written by Paul in which he talks about the fact that if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us, same language, to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The, the reasons I say that it's in following Paul's example is because at the end of this passage, he tells us that this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. It's not to say that it's gotten everywhere. It's meaning that this gospel is not localized. It's not regional like these things you guys are looking at, the gods you are serving. In fact, this gospel is in all creatures around the world. And then Paul tells me this. I'm going to read the right verse. And I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Next week, we're going to have Micah carry on, right? I hope I didn't put you out there. You are ready for that. Okay. Okay. He's going to be carrying on this next passage. And it's the turn. I don't think we made a confirmation. That's a thumbs up. All right. It's a turn to Paul demonstrating what he's doing on behalf of this mission, of this ministry. So as God is at work in us, he's working through us to reconcile the world. And, and friends, here's the deal. We're not all like Paul. Am I suggesting, all right, pack up all your things, sell everything you own, put it in storage, go around the world as an apostle and win others for Christ? Yeah, maybe for you that would be great. And if God's calling you that, please do. But I don't want you to say you have to do that to be faithful to Christ. I would rather have you hear me say that as Christ in his physical body reconciled us to God, that we in our physical bodies, as we are being changed, are seeking to reconcile the world to him. That like you at your workplace, with your friends, with your family, and your conversations, it's a really dangerous thing to say because my family's here. You could ask them about how I am. I'm not that great at this. I'm going to head that one off. My heart's desire is Paul's here. My heart's desire is that when trials come, when tribulations come, when temptations come, when struggles come, when the wrong diagnosis comes, when evil comes our way, when we are harmed, when we are hurt, when we are suffering, that we are firm and grounded and steadfast in the faith. My heart's desire is that we are anchored in Christ, that we are anchored in the gospel, that our hope is in him. And I appreciate that Paul draws out where we came from and what Christ did for us because that's easy to forget. Because, because when you face that trial and when you fail and you fall on your face and it might not be as bad as King David, but it may be close. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting up here ranking sin. You might be like, well, at least I'm better than David. Friends, any hostility towards God is not good for our hearts. And when you fall flat on your face, you know that the same God who laid down his son's life on your behalf 
to reconcile you to him was not caught off guard and he is ready to pick you right back up and continue to transform you to look more like Jesus. Like, it is not a place to fail. It's a place to turn and trust more deeply. And I'm wrestling with that more and more every day because the pain of this world and the suffering we face and the challenges we face, the enemy is at work and we are tempted by our own flesh and all of those things are seeking to draw us away from our hope in the gospel. Just like Colossae, we're not different. Man, humanity stays the same. We just got like new tech. And I'm telling you today, that God wants to change you to be more like Christ and he wants to use you to share that word with the world. Would you anchor your hope in him? Pray with me. Father, thank you for your kindness to for your graciousness, for the gift of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that Paul continues to point us to him. Thank you, Lord, that we are not hopeless if we are trusting in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that when the worst news comes our way, that we know you are in control. Lord, that no works of the enemy, that no sin we fall in, that no, no evil that besets us, that nothing we ever do, that Paul even sings this hymn later in Romans, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Allow us to rest our hope in that. that grant us that firm foundation that we would not be wavering from our faith. That our faith is in a person, not in any other effort we might give. It's not in us or else it would be a failure. But Lord, it's ultimately in you who is never, ever going to fail us. Father, continue to teach us and train us and make us more like Christ and work through our worship as we continue this morning in praise of his name. And I ask all in Christ's name. Amen.